more common hymn, 269, to close the service. Uh, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21 is the scripture reading for the sermon this evening. And I rarely say this, but when I began this week, I had no idea this passage would yield the sermon that it did. Uh, but it, yield, it yielded uh, an unusual sermon, as you'll see. The Song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the excellent, in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the the, the earth swallowed them. In your mercy, uh, have uh, you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as uh, as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which you have made, your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and the horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels. And with dances, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, the song of Moses. We thank you for scripture itself, all of which is breathed out by yourself. It is a word to us. It's a word in season to us. Each word we need to hear. And uh, your word indeed is full of surprises, happy surprises. We thank you, O God, that here, once again, we're able to sit under your word. May it go forth with power as a means of grace to your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said uh, this text yielded a sermon I did not expect. Well, here is a sermon about singing, which I find as fitting as any other kind of sermon, whether about prayer or any of the other disciplines of the Christian life. 
or exercises of the Christian life, the kinds of things you'd find in sermon. I find a prayer on singing as appropriate as a prayer on the Lord's Supper, or excuse me, um, a sermon on the Lord's Supper, a sermon on preaching itself, or any of the means of grace. And yet, to my surprise, I realized I've never preached a sermon on singing. Well, as I say, here is a sermon about singing. Exodus 15 is a celebrated passage of Scripture, the Song of Moses, it is called. Not only do we find Israel singing it here at Moses' direction with the help of Miriam and the ladies, Miriam, his sister, but there is something even greater than that when we come to the pages of Revelation and see in chapter 15 that this song will be sung along with the song of the Lamb at the Sea of Glass. This song thus has a place in heaven, it would seem, and certainly it belongs to the church in the present age. Matthew Henry calls it a typical song expressing the triumphs, he says, of the gospel church. A a, a song, in other words, which belongs to the church of the present age, not just which belonged to Israel. Kyle and Illich say it is of everlasting importance to the church of the Lord and its conflict with the ungodly powers with the world. The point is, as this was Israel's song, so it is ours. It is a good gospel hymn which belongs to the New Covenant as well as the Old. It reads like a psalm. But like the psalms, it was to be sung. And that leads me to the first point. What we have in Exodus chapter 15 is a song. So let us stop and think about that for a moment. We read in verse 1 that Moses and Israel sang this song to the Lord. Moses and the children of Israel sang the song to the Lord and spoke, saying, and then we have the contents of the song. So much is said in this single verse. Verse 1, Matthew Henry, singing is as much the language of holy joy as praying is of holy desire. I couldn't agree more. Singing befits the saints, especially in worship. We read through our Old Testaments and we find the saints there always singing. And it's no different when we come to the New Testament. Paul, in his famous descriptions of the church, what she is and how she is to function, in those two parallel passages, uh, Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5, tells us to sing. Let me read those to you, in fact. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. He says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God, the father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then in Colossians chapter three, verse 12. He says, uh, again, as a parallel, you'll notice the similarities. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on the tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against uh, another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do again. He's describing Christian fellowship. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule your hearts to which you Uh, Also, we're called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. 
Again, there is a picture of what the church must be doing, a picture of Christian fellowship. Do you notice in Scripture how central singing is to the saints in every age in her gatherings? I often think to myself in worship how strange it is that we sing so much. Three hymns every service and uh, a little bit beyond that, actually, if you include the doxology and the Gloria Patri, five times per service. There's so much singing. I don't mean that I wish we weren't singing. That isn't what I mean when I think when I say I think it's strange, only that it's strange by modern standards, because one of the things you rarely see or hear is people singing today. People just don't sing anymore. It's become something Uh, That is almost out of place in society today to have people gather together to sing. There's something almost countercultural about what we're doing now. And as I say to the modern ears, it seems very strange. Of course, it wasn't always that way. It used to be common for people to gather together to sing, even in homes. But it isn't today, which is a sign of how far we've fallen as a society. And if you think of what passes for music today, I mean popular music, you will find little encouragement. But here as we come together, we sing. It's one of the defining characteristics of Presbyterian worship. And we seek, like Israel, to sing great hymns. Hymns which reflect the great songs of Scripture. Even at times to sing hymns which are based upon them. Hymns which befit the glory of God and which befit the saints. We seek to do what Israel does here. Do we understand why we sing? Why is it, as Henry says, as natural for the Christian to sing as it is for him to pray? Or to speak a word in season and so forth? One of the most natural reflexes of Christian fellowship, if you understand what Paul is saying in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. It really is unthinkable that we would gather and not have all of these things. The reason is stated in Ephesians chapter 5. It's because the believer, he says, and then the believers corporately as they're gathered, are full of the Holy Spirit. And a man who is full of the Spirit is full of song. There's the Holy Spirit, after all, who's the author of Scripture. Scripture is full of song. The individual believer is full of the Holy Spirit will be full of song. He will be full of Christian joy, which he feels he must express to the Lord. Beloved, do you realize that heaven itself is full of song and that one of the glories and the joys of heaven will be the fact that together we sing praise to God? Go to Revelation and that's what you see there. Revelation teaches us the centrality of singing. And even, uh, I confess to my surprise, I hadn't even thought of this, that we will sing this very song, the song of Moses, together with the song of the Lamb. And we have an instance of that in Revelation chapter 15. There is really nothing so wonderful, and I hope you would agree, as congregational singing. It is something the Lord delights in as much as his people. Something which the Lord wishes to find when his people gathered. A Christian church is composed of those who love to sing God's praises. Indeed, you will even see here a kind of determination to do so. I will sing to the Lord. That's the first pronouncement by Moses, which the people joined in in singing. And yet imagine there are those today who are asking us not to sing. For reasons that you know. Well, they may not understand our reasons, but that is a request that we cannot possibly agree to. Singing is as much a part of the Christian life as anything else. 
And so we will go on singing. I will sing to the Lord. That is the determination of the heart of the believer, especially as he comes into the courts of the Lord. We have a song first. Second, the occasion must also be noted. What is it that makes us sing? Well, here it was obviously the Exodus event, the completion of the Lord's overthrow of his enemies and Israel's enemies. Something that is constantly celebrated in the song. Many instances here are recounted of what the Lord had just done in overthrowing Pharaoh's armies. And so here we have a celebration of his glorious might. The whole song is sung as Israel stood there beholding what the Lord had done. The judgments he had wrought along with the salvation which he achieved for Israel. Here was a time for singing if ever there was. In song we worship God for his mighty acts. So worship which is full of song must be seen as a continual celebration of God's mighty acts. Times of worship are to be times of remembrance. But also times in which we express as we see here our hope of future blessing. As we see him expressing in the third verse, uh, the Lord conquering enemies in the future and the Lord bringing his people to the temple. We celebrate in remembrance and we look forward to what he will do. All of this, beloved, makes us sing. The occasion then is what the Lord has done and what he will do. Let us notice next the kind of song it is. Now, I hadn't thought to make this point until Matthew Henry more or less made me make it. I realize I had to. In fact, I realize that there is no point which is more necessary than this point to notice not just that they sang, but the kind of song which they sung. Is there anything so amiss about Christian worship today than the songs that are sung and the manner of their singing? Now, I'm speaking generally. I hope I'm speaking Not about this church, but about so many others. It's difficult to say what is more unsettling to the earnest believer who is full of the spirit. The triviality of the singing which he finds in most churches or of the preaching. Oh, but notice here the kind of song it was sung by Moses and the people. As Matthew Henry says, it was a holy song. The great subject was God and his holiness and his glorious might, a song which befit the God to whom they sung. Even his wrath and the fear which is due him by us and his enemies comes in. I often hear on the subject of worship and worship styles, people say that the music style that you find in the church is essentially adiaphora. It's just a matter of taste. It doesn't matter the style of worship. Well, I wouldn't agree with that. And I'm preaching this third point against that sentiment. I find that to be wrong. That there are some styles of worship which are not worship at all. Of course, there will be some differences among all true churches as to their singing. Just as the preaching and the makeup of the congregation vary from congregation to congregation. And none of us are uniform in these things. But if there's not a note of holiness in the singing and of reverence and fear, a celebration we see here, even of his wrath. Then I wonder whether it even deserves to be called worship at all. Remember, beloved, why we sing and to whom we sing. Our singing must be holy and reverent because it is our sacrifice of praise to a God who is holy. 
It is a celebration of his acts which demonstrate his holiness. And above all, because in worship, it is our communion and our participation in his holiness. And so obviously everything that we do ought to reflect that. Our singing as much as anything else. But then, in the fourth place, and as the main point of the sermon, we have the structure and the song itself. We notice that the, the, the song is divided into three main verses, not too unlike the hymns that we sing, though usually they're more. Uh, but there is also in this a refrain which you find in verse 1, which introduces the theme to be expounded in the song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The rider, the horse and its rider, he has thrown into the sea. That is the refrain, which is then to be repeated or answered, we read, by Miriam and the women as she led the women in response to the men. So we read in verses 20 and 21, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, that is, she sang in response, or they sang in response, verse 1, the refrain, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Most likely, we don't know when uh, that refrain was sung, but most likely the men would sing, one verse, the women would respond, the men would sing the second verse, the women would respond, and then the third verse, and the women would respond. There are three verses, or three stanzas, whatever you want to call them here, which expound upon the theme stated in verse 1, each in their own way. The first we find in verses 2 through 5. And the theme of uh, this first verse of the hymn, or the song, is his strength to defeat his enemies. It begins like this. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. This is indeed a fitting thing for the saints to say and to sing. Is it not enough for us to say, he is my God, and I will praise him? But the really great burden is found in what he says in verse 3. Now listen to this. The Lord is a man of war. Well, who could doubt that now? And haven't I been saying that throughout Exodus, that the Lord is a man of war? I've been saying those exact words. And some of you have even questioned me on that. Is that really right? Well, let me tell you this. It's not only right, but it's something you ought to sing. It's something you ought to delight in and praise God for. Here was a song of victory in battle with the Lord as the mighty warrior and the champion of his people. And so he always is. Now, let me say again, it's perhaps a little strange to some of you to speak of the Lord this way, still less to sing it. The Lord is a man of war. But I tell you, for my part, I'm glad of it. I'm glad to know the Lord is in the fight and that for him to fight is to win. His victories, as we find in Exodus, are not always immediate. They're often long delayed for reasons of his own, reasons best suited to display his glory. But there's no reason to fear with the Lord on our side. And soon there will be much reason for us to sing as well as Israel. Another thing that is said here, uh, just following that, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Well, that has also been a major assertion of Exodus. And here we see how it, how it appears that he as the Lord enjoys unlimited 
freedom in the exercise of his will. How it is, in other words, that we plainly see that he is the Lord and the Lord is his name. It is in the overthrow of his enemies. Nothing so makes it to appear that he is the Lord than that none can oppose him with impunity. None can withstand his might when he appears as the savior of his people. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And let us see it and let us sing it. Pharaoh Pharaoh's chariots and his army he casts into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. This leads me to the second major section. The second verse in verses 6 through 10. And here the emphasis is how the Lord himself has done this. The Lord alone has done this without the help of man. This was the work of his own hand and no other. Verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemies in pieces. One of the things that we notice in this song, in singing God's praise, is that Moses has nothing to say about man. Oh yes, you could claim Moses played his part and so he did. But when the, the deed was done, all praise and glory and honor to God. It is all a celebration of what God has done and what he alone can do. The glory of his might, his great acts display, as he says in verse seven, the greatness of his excellence. You just notice here the superlative language, not his excellence or his greatness, but the greatness of his excellence. It reminds me of what is a kind of hymn in itself, Ephesians chapter one. This is a very fine way of putting it, a worthy way of singing the Lord's praise, the greatness of his excellence. In the Exodus, it is indeed the greatness of his his excellence that we see. Look at his great enemy, verse 9. Look at who he overthrew. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Proud and mighty was his foe. And certain to overtake Israel if the Lord did not intervene. And yet, how easily God defeated them all at once. Verse 8. With the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. For all of the strength of Pharaoh, how easily God, with a mere breath of his nostril, overthrew him. His command over the wind and the sea make us think of Jesus and the Gospels. You remember what the disciples said in the boat when Jesus commanded them uh, the sea and the wind and the great storm to be calm. And so they were. They said, who is this that the wind and the sea obey his command? And the implied answer, which they all knew in asking the question, can this be any other than the Lord himself? The creator and the ruler of nature and of all things. But even more striking is the statement found at the end of verse 7. You sent forth your wrath. Not just you overthrew your enemies, but you sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. Again, something you don't always find in the hymns and the songs today. A celebration of his wrath which displays the greatness of his excellence. There is a strange delight which the saints feel in the overthrow of the wicked, one which I confess I did not always feel, but which now I do. 
God is glorified, beloved, in all his attributes and in all his acts, which surely includes his wrath against the wicked. Nothing so demonstrates the glory of his wrath than that he should damn the sinner, that in the dispute between God and the sinner, God should prevail and prevail mightily and even should prevail eternally. This too, let us see, is a matter of song. In heaven we will not only praise him that he has saved the elect, but we will equally praise him that he has damned the reprobate. We will eternally delight in all he has done. None of his acts will be forgotten by us there as we sing this song together with the song of the Lamb. All of these display the greatness of his excellence and it is the office of the saints to see this and to glory in it and to sing it. But all of this comes out strongest in the third verse, verses 11 through 18, where he says in verse 11, who is like you, O Lord? Is there anyone who can compare? Surely there are none like him. The world powers in Moses day, so in our own rise against him and they fall at his command. They fall at his breath. He alone is the Lord Glorious in holiness, he says. Indeed, as Matthew Henry says, his holiness is his glory. And it is the glory of his holiness that makes him appear to be the Lord and no other. Yes, but what is his holiness by which his glory appears to us? Well, it's seen in all that we see here in the song. It's seen in his hatred of sin and of the sinner. It's seen in his love for the saints and his church. It is seen in his love of all that is good and just and perfect. To speak of the glory of his holiness is to speak of all that makes him God. Which is to say, uh, so unlike us, the creatures he has made. All the perfections of his being uh, and life. Glorious in holiness, there is none like him. Here is a reason to sing. Likewise, he adds, fearful in praises doing wonders. As we behold the wonders of his work, whether uh, in nature or in scripture, or consider the wonders that one day he will do, the wonders of his being equally, there is much, uh, let us confess, and perhaps not be so afraid to confess, much that makes us afraid with a holy fear. And that is to be distinguished from the fear which the nations feel, verses 14 and following. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. Uh, the mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. On and on he goes. That's a different kind of fear he speaks of. And yet we might notice it's the same thing in both instances that make them afraid. But it's a different kind of fear. When he says, fearful in praises, doing Wonders. He's describing the kind of fear that we feel as we praise him. But we recognize, as Israel recognized here, seeing what the Lord had just done, washing the bodies, uh, watching the bodies of, of Egypt wash upon the seashore as they sung this song, that his wonders are terrible to behold, so full as they are of judgment and wrath, fearful in praises doing wonders. And worse things we realize will still befall the sinner on the last day. Again, as typified as he sings in verses 14 through 16, looking forward to the overthrow of the Canaanites and others. 
we cannot consider and behold such wonders and not sing with a note of fear and trembling at the Lord's mighty acts. Here I think especially of hymn number 241, John Newton's Judgment Hymn. Let me just read a little bit of it. Now we just sang it, or sung it, but uh, I didn't want to do it again. Perhaps we could have at the end of the, the, the service, but... It's a solemn hymn. It's a fearful hymn. Day of judgment, day of wonders. Hark the trumpet, trumpet's awful sound. Louder than a thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. See the judge, our nature wearing clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious Savior, own me in that day is thine. At his call the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his look prepared to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? But to those who have confessed, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near ye blessed. See the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know. Fearful in praises. It's a solemn hymn, but one which befits the saints. One which is worthy of God's praise an object of wonder and adoration and of holy fear, fearful in praise. Again, as we consider his acts and what he one day will do. Yes, but look here and see equally that with him there is mercy. Verse 13, you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength, your holy habitation. Lord, when I consider what you do to the wicked, I tremble in fear and in wonder. But at the same time, when I think of the mercy which you bestow upon your people, I am amazed. Just as we are trembling at his judgment, so we see that he leads us to the place of his holy habitation. And the more we behold of his glory there, the more we tremble in awe of his power and majesty. But still we sing and wonder at his greatness, that he should be our God and before us rather than against us. What is it that makes God to smile upon his church even as he frowns against the world? The only answer is his mercy. That he in his mercy leads his people to a place of worship that they might praise him. The only thing that makes us praise him is mercy. Whereas we see, on the other hand, again looking to verses 14 through 16, an altogether different outcome. The nations by his wrath are driven far from him and wish that he would never visit them. But just as he says in verse 13 that in his mercy he leads us to his holy habitation, so in verse 17 prophetically he looks forward to this. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Again, that is a prophetic word. He's looking forward to what the Lord will do, but he has everything to expect that he will. Here is a picture, like in verse 13, of God leading Israel out of Egypt into Canaan and even to Jerusalem where his temple would be. There the God of heaven would make earth his own abode, the place of his own special presence where he dwelt with his people. And it was there that he was leading them. God in his great wrath against Egypt and mercy toward Israel was leading his people to a place 
of worship where they might sing. And in anticipation of this, it was fitting that they should begin to sing now as he led them there. And that is a very fitting note for a song such as this. For the very thing Moses is contemplating and which, is, and which he is doing himself is worshiping God. And that is seen in God's very actions, which he contemplates here to be the ultimate end of all that he does. Everything that God does is done with the aim that he might be worshipped and praised and glorified. He redeems the people in order that they might worship him and sing his praises and for no other reason. He leads them into the places of worship that he might be worshipped in song. Song which, once more, songs which befit his glory and the greatness of his excellence. Verse 7. Indeed, we're able to see in this song a fitting picture of what our praises should be. The kind of stuff our songs should be full of. And even the tenor and the spirit of how we must sing. Let our theme and our song ever be, He is the Lord and not ourselves, and by His right hand He has saved us. And He has led us into His sanctuary that we might now sing His praises. We even hear, if we are to extend the prophecy a little bit further, spiritualizing the passage, which I said this morning was surely right, we get a glimpse of what is later said in Hebrews, where the theme is this, Christ has been sacrificed, He has been slain. And he has gone before us now into heaven and he is leading us there. He is leading us into the heavenly tabernacle of what uh, of which uh, the earthly tabernacle was but a type. All that we might worship God in his presence, both then and now, if you if you go on reading Hebrews, we're almost there. The theme of chapter 12, especially in the second half, is worship. The whole effect of Christ's saving work is that we might be redeemed and led into his presence, that we might worship him there. But the final note is struck in verse 18, where this is said, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And there we see something that we ought to always see, something we ought always to sing, that the Lord, unlike men, rules in such a way that he never ceases to rule. Even if his rule doesn't always appear to us. And we might think today is such a day. And yet we are still able to sing in every age that his kingdom has no end just as his power knows no limits. His reign will simply go on and on. And of this we might also think, as Hebrews has taught us, to think of our great high priest in heaven. Who has not only made heaven itself a place which is fit for sinners now to dwell by his blood and to worship God. But now as he reigns in heaven, he reigns until he will subdue every enemy under his feet. And from there he will appear, not only as our Savior, but as our King, when he comes in judgment. Our great high priest of whom it is said in Psalm 110, verses 5 through 7, and as we find repeated in the book of Hebrews. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of the country of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. Let us read and sing these words. The Lord shall reign forever. And think of that. And this too, beloved, is a matter of praise and song. And so having said all of that. Let us sing to the Lord. So we close out our worship standing and singing together hymn number 269.